reading this morning is from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through to verse 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have grieved it by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I was um, listening to ABC Radio on Friday, and I caught the end of President Joe Biden's address to the nation. I've never heard an address to the nation before by a president, Um, but here here was an address to the nation um, by their president seeking to bring unity of mind across America in support of freedom and the ongoing work to equip nations like Ukraine and Israel to defend themselves from neighboring countries or peoples. So it was this message to really kind of raise support, raise a unity amongst the the people of America. And and, um, while an address to the nation, it was touted on the news, certainly ABC News after it, talked about how it was really an address to the world as the president's message was beamed across the, uh, to various different nations. Uh, they listed different radio stations in France and the UK and America and other places around uh, uh, the uh, European Union. So he sought, really, they were saying, to tell the, any other would-be uh, superpowers as well that the United States of America continued to be the essential nation in maintaining world peace, that it was American leadership that held the world together. He reminded the American people that there was nothing beyond their capacity if they did it together. It was, in one sense, a message of hope. On a more personal front, have you ever received something of that nature? a letter from someone or a message or a phone call sharing encouragement to keep you going, particularly in the face of some difficulty that you were experiencing. Personally, I remember uh, the words of godly encouragement sent to Sarah and I uh, a little over four years ago from our church family and others during the very difficult days around Benjamin's emergency evacuation to Melbourne. Um, where he, his, his life was saved. 
words that encouraged us to trust in God and his sovereignty despite the darkness of the days that we faced and the uncertainty of the situation, not knowing what was going to happen. Communication from others, even in the form of a, of a national address, such as uh, President Biden's address, can be a great encouragement to us as humans. But for the Christian, encouragement to continue to exercise our faith in God in the face of adversity can be of exceptional value. Being reminded that we are not alone, that God has an eternal purpose and that he continues to be a good father, working out our salvation in our lives. A message like that might be the difference between holding on or walking away. And this is the broad purpose of the book of 1 Peter. As our series title suggests, 1 Peter contains a message of hope to God's people. Encouragement to persevere in the face of trials, looking forward to eternity, and teaching on how to live lives that stand out from among the people around them in the present as they together represent and proclaim God to a world that would much rather live for itself. Today we're going to look at the first nine verses, and in doing so we're going to ask ourselves the question, does the reality of our faith, does the reality of your faith create in you a joyful hope? Perhaps a, a counter way of thinking about that to challenge ourselves as we read our passage might be, how much do the present trials of living in a world in opposition to God cause us to lose sight of the source and the purpose and the beauty of our faith? Now, there are some big theological concepts in these opening few verses. So today, I plan to just go over in an overview and, uh, and try and bring together this, this broader theme. And then as we unpack the rest of the, the letter over time, these themes will come up throughout those weeks and that will provide us a, a better uh, platform to be able to explore and put some flesh on the bone, so to speak, of some of those bigger topics. We'll have more opportunity to explore them in, in detail rather than trying to address them all in, in one sermon. So, a good place to start. Who wrote the letter? Well, as was the custom that we see in lots of our New Testament letters, the author is named at the very beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle being someone that sent Jesus Christ, having sent Peter, one of his apostles. It seems pretty straightforward. Peter is a well-known character in the New Testament scriptures, and particularly in the Gospels. And, but when it comes to the epistles, Paul tends to be the person that we hear most about. Lots more of his letters are in the Bible than Peter's. Now, Peter was originally named Simon. Jesus called him to be one of his disciples to walk with Jesus during his ministry on earth, to be taught directly by the Son of God, the truths of God that had been laid out in the Old Testament scriptures through the people of Israel, as we've been reading about ourselves, as a mystery. 
which was now being revealed in the Christ, and to witness the miraculous works of Jesus as he uh, brought sight to the blind, made the lame walk, made the lepers clean, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. And that's the message that Jesus sent to John the Baptist when he asked whether Jesus was the Christ, demonstrating that he was coming to fulfill all that the Old Testament had said the Christ would. Jesus called Simon from his fishing nets, along with his brother Andrew and some of the other fishermen nearby. And Peter's later recognition and declaration in the power of the Spirit of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16, led to Jesus giving him a new name, Peter. Peter being the Greek translation of the Aramaic Cephas, saying that the church would be built on this teaching, the rock on which nothing would prevail against, with Christ as its sure cornerstone and his apostles taking Christ and his gospel to the world. The timing of this letter is unknown. And while the early church appears to have readily accepted that the apostle Peter uh, was the direct author of this letter, uh, one Peter uh, being taken into the canon very early, it seems later scholarship has questioned whether Peter was the writer of the letter at all, which is interesting to me. People have certainly lots of written, lots and lots of written is written about it. <laughs> some of the main things that cause some of the questions for people is the eloquence of the Greek in which the letter is written. Uh, some of the similarities with the way that Paul writes in some of his letters. The lack of express reference to Peter's time with Jesus. Uh, problems with dating the the persecution that he's re- referencing in the letter. And, and the audience of the letter being Roman provinces in Gentile areas that Paul had been an apostle to, as in Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter tended to be the apostle to the Jews. So these are some of the problems people started thinking about. Well, you know, why, if, if, if all these things exist, then maybe, is, is, is Peter actually the author? So, so in an in a alternative to Peter, the solutions of the apparent problem, the, the two main hypotheses appear to be First, that the letter was written by an anonymous writer with Peter as a pseudonym, perhaps a disciple of Peter's, to continue and share Peter's teachings on the Christ that the apostle himself had been sharing since Jesus' ascension. And so there's some argument for that. The second uh, is that the letter was not just written by, uh, not just written by Silvanus, which uh, we see right at the end of the uh, book, chapter 5, verse 12, talks about Silvanus having written for Peter the letter. So the theory is that it wasn't, he didn't just write the letter, but he actually wholly structured the letter with Peter's basic guidance on the content. In that way, Silvanus incorporated a lot of how Paul talked, uh, sorry, a lot of how Paul taught the same truths because Silvanus had traveled with and written other letters with Paul and so had that sort of content already. So that's kind of the two main alternatives to it being Peter. As I've read through the book myself, and as I've read the arguments, I think some of this will come out as we go through. And as we take a closer look at what is being revealed about God and about God's people, uh, we'll be able to test 
some of that against the rest of Scripture, as we should, as we do that. We'll have a, another opportunity to look at authorship specifically at the end. As I said, chapter 5, Silvanus, we, we talk about Silvanus and, and his role there, which is also Silas, if we've heard of Paul and Silas. Silvanus is Silas. But, for now, in my view, I don't think we have any need to look beyond the plain words of the text and say that, as far as we can see, it is written by Peter, it is, at the very least, sharing the authoritative apostolic teaching of Peter on behalf of the one who personally sent him, Jesus Christ. So for the purpose of today, I think that's as far as we need to go. So, who then is the letter addressed to? Well, again, the text tells us, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it was kind of exciting for me to, to have a look at this list and compare it to where the people had come from uh, in Acts when Peter stood up in the power of the Spirit at Pentecost in Jerusalem and, pro- and proclaimed the gospel. And 3,000 people were added to their church. In that list, we see some overlap. It's a much bigger list. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. But Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia overlap with our list in our letters, uh, letter by, Paul, uh, by Peter. While there is some small overlap of areas with Paul, such as Galatia, we see that Paul spent time in Galatia. The churches that Peter is addressing in our letter are all in the northern end of Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Also, which I found quite interesting, was that that this area includes places that Paul was going to go to, wanted to go to, planned to go to, but upon praying, was expressly excluded from going to by the Spirit during his missionary journeys. And that included Asia and Bithynia. We see that in Acts chapter 16, 6 to 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysa, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul did end up in Asia, spending some time in Ephesus at some point. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 8 to 9. But there are, there's a whole mob of region there that Paul didn't spend any time in planting the gospel seed. So here we are, many years after Pentecost, and Peter is reaching out to churches that likely included folk who had heard the good news proclaimed in Jerusalem, who had taken the message back to their homes, sharing that good news themselves, perhaps with other missionaries in the area, people like Apollos and Timothy were also cruising around. Baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and joining together as God's visible people in churches. And I think that's pretty cool to see how this all fits together and see how God's word is spreading out and creating churches in all of these regions. So, how are these people described? Well, the people in those churches that Peter is addressing are described as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Seems like a pretty weird title to call a group of people. The elect exiles of the dispersion, according 
to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. There's some great Trinitarian language being used there, isn't there? To describe how each person of the Godhead works to bring about our salvation here. And Peter lays the theological foundation for the rest of the letter of encouragement by starting in this way. But let's go back to what is this elect exiles of the dispersion? There's no doubt that this wording was intended to draw the reader's mind to some Old Testament realities. To the fact that just as Israel was called out as a special chosen people from among the nations, so too were these Christians. An example of of the Old Testament language of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 to 8. And it says this, For you, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel was chosen. They were elected out of the ancient peoples of of, of the world. In the same way, at times, they were also exiles, strangers in the world, dispersed among a pagan, worldly society as sojourners a people displaced from their true home and citizenship. Just as the people of Israel had been separated from the promised land in Jerusalem, particularly during their exile in Babylon, so now the Christians of the dispersion were in exile from their true home, the new Jerusalem, heaven. That's the tail end of Deuteronomy there. We see Paul speak about this idea of our citizenship being in heaven in Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20. Not only, uh, this, this point can be made, but the people could take heart that this was not an accident or twist of fate. Rather, this whole situation, the fact that they were exiles, the fact that they were dispersed amongst the nations, the fact that they were in an area where... The rest of the world was looking on them in, in disbelief, perhaps even aggression at times. Rather than that being an accident, it was foreknown by God and part of his predetermined plan. God's elect people were identified, with, uh, uh, identified as such by their sanctification. That is the identification of them out from among others by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is that other use of sanctification. We have sanctification that is about us improving or becoming more and more Christ-like. This is the other use of sanctification, where it is setting something apart to be sanctified. And so that's what the use of this word is. The identification of them out from among others by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The effect? Well, that God's people would work out their election in obedience. So as we go through the book, we're going to see how God's people are being called out to live 
differently. We're going to see what obedience looks like. But one thing that this passage makes very clear is that it is not our obedience that saves us. Rather, it is our salvation that makes it possible to obey. And I don't know about you, but that's actually of great encouragement to me. As, as, as I make mistakes and as I live a life that isn't in conformity to the way that God would call me to do, it's encouraging for me to see this truth that Christ has made me uh, saved. It is Christ that makes my faith and, and we'll see that more as we go through. And also of an encouragement, I think, is the follow-up point that the elect, having been sanctified or consecrated for God, continue to be cleansed by the sprinkling with his blood. And again, thanks to us being, uh, having gone through Leviticus, this particular picture sprung out for me more. Reminiscent of the the work of the great high priest standing before the throne of God on our behalf, providing a way for the ongoing uh, forgiveness of our sins as our obedience fails to meet the standard deserved by God. As our uh, atonement is received and and completed in Christ and our high priest continues to mediate for us before the throne of God. And John notes this. In 1 John 1 verse 9, by reminding his readers that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's great consistency between the New Testament writers on these points. And so, with that theological underpinning in place, Itself quite unique as a greeting, if you go through some of the other New Testament writers. Peter rounds out his greeting to God's elect with, the, with seeking uh, God's blessing for them. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, may God's favor, his grace, and, and shalom, the true and complete abiding peace that comes from being made complete in Christ, may that be provided to them in greater and greater measure. What, what a great blessing to give to people. What a great thing for us to be thinking about as we pray for and encourage one another to be able to use words like that and really build one another up in thinking about how God will continue to do this work in our lives. And these are realities that will be genuinely felt only when we have the saving faith through Christ as a gift of God. And that is where Peter goes to describe Next, I thought it might be interesting, well, just helpful to note, we've got, we don't really reference it all that often, but this opening passage in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, is taken up in our church statement of faith. It's in clause, five, or clause 1c and in clause 5. In 1c, it's talking about uh, the work of the true iron God in his glorious plan of redemption, drawing sinners like us to believe in his Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's, this verse is used for that, as well as explaining the purpose of God's grace. So it might be worth checking it out again, having a look and seeing uh, some of the other passages that support uh, why, why that's in our statement of faith. All right, so that's Peter's introduction to the letter. For the remaining verses, the opening exhortations of Peter 
I'm going to use the following four headings. We see illustrations that we have a faith that grants salvation. We have a faith that guards us. We have a faith that's genuine. And we have a faith that glorifies. Each point, as I said, is going to be relatively short. And I'm just going to allow the truths to speak for themselves, really. So, the first, faith that grants salvation. Peter moves from his introduction and enters into a detailed exploration of faith, following a theme of assurance that is granted to God's elect through Christ being raised from the dead. But before he gets there, it seems that he can't help. He can't help himself, but first proclaim, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark. (laughs) Before he even starts talking about this faith, Peter bursts into a praise of God. So great is the encouragement that Peter wants to share in Christ, that praise to God the Father just swells up and spills out. What is he so excited about? Why? Why this sudden praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he goes on to say, according to his great mercy, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us, in which he includes himself, and I think we can safely include ourselves, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. I wonder, I wonder if Peter had memories of Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the garden in the dead of night, asking, how might I be saved? And Jesus' answer to him being, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus, with a perplexed look on his face, how is this possible? How do, I, how do I return to my mother's womb and become born again? And Jesus explaining what that would be as he himself would provide the way for Nicodemus to be born again. No doubt Peter has these memories in his mind as he's walked with his saviour. And he goes on to point out this living hope that Jesus gives us has a focus or an aim, and that is an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He, he directs it now at the, at the elect and says, this is kept in heaven for you. Three interesting descriptive words. Now, I understand in Greek, they have a, a similar ending, so they're all quite similar. In English, they don't quite have the same kind of feel, but I still think they're, they're interesting ways of describing something. It's almost a process of eliminating what the inheritance is not, rather than sort of describing what it is. So all that's left is, is this permanent and beautiful thing. I tried to think of some examples of what, it, what imperishable might be, and I guess it's, it's not like food that... He sits in a Darwin cupboard or pantry, <laughs> getting wrecked by bed, bread bugs. And, you know, when you open the, the, the little bag of spices and it's got little things all in it. This inheritance is not perishable like that. This is something that has no age. It is something that doesn't go bad. It is something that never wears out. 
undefiled, not impacted by, by stain or wrinkle or the pervasive infestation of, of mold, but like the well-ironed shirt, crisp, no wrinkles, the brand new car with that new car smell, or, the, or anything out of the box when it's fresh, undefiled, unblemished, and unfading, not like my children's toys in the backyard in the sun, losing their brightness and so <clears throat> losing their appeal. Or the remote control, uh, the remote control car rather, or the air conditioner remote, as the batteries are dying and, and you've got to kind of use it in the right direction or right way and press the button a certain way to, to get it to work. But something that remains lively and interesting without any suggestion of wearing out, that works every time and never, ever grows boring. This is the inheritance that is set out for us. In a sense, like a, a will, allocating an estate in clear purpose and plan. Except not like a will, because the person who is giving the inheritance is alive. It's not an accident. There's no chance involved. It's not by our own doing. This is an act of God's own mercy that we are given this new birth into a living hope and an inheritance that is incorruptible. And so in light of these descriptions, there is no reason for such an inheritance to become boring or in need of renewal or replacement. How do you go with that? Do you ever feel like you need to look for something new? So somehow the, the gospel itself is, well, it's getting a bit repetitive. It's a good thing for us to continue to reflect on because as we see in scripture, the gospel is the power at which, through which Christ works in us. It is an incorruptible inheritance, this salvation through faith. Let's work at not allowing it to become dull or boring. It is not a dull or boring inheritance. Something for us to do. I think this is a great example and reason why we have church, why we get together, why we encourage one another in, in these things so that we don't find ourselves falling into the, the trap that maybe things are getting a little dull and I need something fresh and new. Because the second point that Peter makes is that this inheritance is kept for us. And it's also kept through faith. Faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. Now you might be saying to yourself, hey, isn't faith an action? And I'm going to say, hold that thought. There is a lot to be explored around these concepts in the rest of the letter and throughout the Bible and this will be one of them. But suffice to say, yes, it is something that we exercise. We are responsible as individuals to repent and believe the gospel. And humans will be held accountable for their choices not to do so. Scripture tells us so. However, without exploring that in detail, let's just stay with the truth set out in front of us in this text. 
allow the fact that salvation is through faith alone. And hold that intention with the equally true fact that salvation is by grace alone. It is a faith that we take on and exercise, but it is a gift given to us by God without any of our own works or merit. An act of mercy, as we've read. Stand secure in the truth that the faith we exercise is itself a gift of God and an expression of his grace. And be thankful. I mean, that, that's awesome that we don't have to achieve that ourselves. And I think it's also helpful, much like I asked the question just a moment ago, for us to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this truth? As Christians, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has died in our place and has given us new life, hope-filled lives that were planned with a purpose, lives won on our behalf, what do we do with that? Do we, like Peter, let it well up and spill out of our lives in praise? Does that happen? Do you, do you, do you think about this truth and just go into sort of a sense of awe at who God is and what he has done? When we come together for corporate worship, do, do we look forward to celebrating this truth together? Do we look forward to singing songs that declare this truth? Did you come excited about that this morning? Does it form part of our conversations when we're talking to one another? Does the fact that we were once dead but now we are alive. Does that infiltrate our emotions as we come to the gathering? As we encourage one another day by day along the journey? As we challenge one another to make change? Brother, sister, hallelujah, you can rest and celebrate in the knowledge that your salvation is sure. Because it is God's own doing through his gift of faith. And just as 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 is taken up in our Emmaus Road Statement of Faith, so is verse 3. This time in expressing God's grace in the regeneration of sinners through the inner work of the Holy Spirit, giving us new life. Replacing our rebellious heart with a heart that delights in obeying God and responding to Him in repentance and faith. With that, we move on to faith that guards. Now, you might have noticed I jumped over a few words in verse 5, which I want to double back on now. And they are that you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. This, this was actually a really interesting point for me to think about in preparing for this, in reading through this passage and thinking about that truth. that our, We think often about the fact that our faith is something we exercise, as we've talked about. But the fact that our faith is something that guards us, that the faith that God has given us is something that protects and keeps. Not only do we have a saving faith as a gift of grace, not only does that grant us a present salvation with an eternal inheritance in Christ, but it works to guard us. Now, the word translated here as guard is a military term referring to that of a, of a garrison. Peter is here saying, God guards you and your inheritance the way that the Roman garrison, the soldiers you see, 
guard their forts. Rome was a pretty formidable force in those days. And a garrison of, of Roman legionaries with their shields up and locked together would have been a pretty difficult opponent. I mean, they conquered a lot of the world, except Asterix and Obelix. But even indomitable Gauls aside, even the Romans, with all of their discipline, they were not impenetrable. And so the garrison analogy may fall down in that context. But the garrison that's guarding us and our inheritance in Christ was not a Roman garrison. It is God's own power. Peter says the same power that divided the Red Sea for the people of God, allowing them to pass through on dry land in the book of Exodus, that the same power that, that burst forth and consumed the offering on the altar with fire in Leviticus 9, as we read last week here, the power that kept the exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, safe from the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace in Daniel, or Daniel from the lions for that matter, and so many other stories as we see the power of God at work. Actually, if we're using Asterix and Obelix comics, it would be better described more like Asterix and Obelix with their magic potion guarding us against the Romans. That, God's power, is what guards our inheritance. And it is, a, it is described as faith. This is why we sing songs like we did at the start of the gathering today, that Christ is a sure and steady anchor that we sing songs that say that as long as our life is here, God will give us and supply us what we need to persevere. Blessed indeed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when that is the way that he looks after us. And so, Peter explains some of this a bit more. Point three, faith that is genuine. Oddly enough, the notion of the merciful, saving gift of faith that provides and keeps itself secure becomes even more beautiful as Peter turns to remind his readers of another reality, trials. I say oddly enough because who knew that trials would be something that would be a thing of beauty in the face of faith? Having described the, the reader's salvation, our salvation, one through faith, and the protection and keeping of that salvation through faith, Peter brings them together and says in this, in these last couple of verses, you rejoice. Why? Because you've been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this you rejoice. The concept of suffering in the Christian life is, is not uncommon in the New Testament, nor is the encouragement to rejoice in our sufferings either. A popular one is James, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Jesus himself said on a few occasions, but specifically in John, recorded in John 16.33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Jesus made the, the, promise, the promise, really, that persecution would happen to his followers. That was made clear in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he expressly told them to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, recognizing that temptation, trial, similar, well, same word, I think, would come and we would need deliverance. And Peter reflects these truths in his encouragement and says, deliverance is at hand. And true to his word, which makes total sense because he's God, the church has experienced trials for as long as it's been around, since the time of Jesus. I was recently watching a documentary by Tim Challers called Epic. It's about church history illustrated through artifacts that bring biblical history to life. It's quite interesting. And he showed two items depicting the trials of the church over a number of hundreds of years, other than the more obvious examples of actual physical persecution at different points in history, of course. One of them was this. It's believed to be a very early graffiti from around the year 200 AD-ish in Rome, where it understood to be someone seeking to mock a fellow named Alexamenos for worshipping his God. It's an etched depiction of Jesus with the head of a donkey on the cross. Etched into the wall, paying out on Alexamenos, Alexamenos for his worship of a saviour, a God that would die on a cross. Some many years later, this one a bit more ornate, depicting Mary effectively stomping the heretics away as they're wrestling with snakes. Those heretics, Martin Luther and John Hus, sending them out before her for identifying and teaching the very truth that we're talking about this morning, salvation by faith alone. The Protestant Bible is there being destroyed by a cherub and the books below the two men have the names Johann Calvin and Martin Luther. Trials in our lives. Trials in the church. They have been and will continue to be present. And they can be very difficult to rejoice in, can't they? An illustration I had in my own mind just in preparing this very sermon. When it became clear that I was going to need to preach this weekend with a relatively short turnaround... I began to do the reading and preparation around the, the various other things that I need to do. Being a, a lay elder means I'm still working full-time. But unfortunately, this weekend came together with a number of other fairly big things in a row. I, I was preparing another talk on Friday for a bunch of lawyers. I was playing in a concert last night, which was like my one-off concert that I play once a year. And I was preparing for my sermon this morning. All, all came up in a row. And on top of that, I was traveling remotely all week. So despite doing something good, despite doing something that I actually really like to do, studying and teaching God's word, the time pressure made me think at times in quite unproductive and unhelpful ways. Of greatest impact were, were doubts 
and frustrations with my inability to prepare sermons quickly, how, how long it takes for me to think through these things and write them down in a way that might make some sense and then doubting whether it even makes any sense. It's hard to do things to the glory of God when this is where your mind goes. So what was particularly helpful for me in reflecting on this passage was this truth that trials are a deliberate and controlled part of our lives. As with all of the earlier discussion, the circumstances surrounding God's elect are purposeful. And that includes our difficult circumstances. And that was helpful for me in progressing through and meant I could really find joy at times in what I was doing. All the time? No. Did my thoughts break through? Yeah. There were times last night and I was kind of falling asleep in my chair trying to <laughs> finish typing and I was thinking, why am I doing this? But praise God for his grace in my life and the work that he continues to do through my circumstances. There is much to be said about the cause of pain and suffering in our trials and it would require a much more systematic theology on the topic, which I can't pretend to cover today. And I don't want to belittle or downplay the significant impact that trials have through my sort of simple illustrations. I know that many in our church family wrestle with the regular presence of trials in their daily lives. But no matter the intensity, the encouragement that Peter shares is the same. And I think it can be talked about in three particular ways. First is that trials are only for a little while. Some trials, like this sermon, will indeed be temporary and will pass. It will be done in about three hours. Others, we may not see the end of this side of heaven though. But Peter deliberately describes being grieved by various trials as being something that is relatively short in comparison with the eternity in perfection with God that our salvation has won already for us. We look in hope to our inheritance. Second, the trials are only if necessary. That is, God remains sovereign over our trials and temptations, such that whatever we experience is not outside of his sovereign control and guarding, as we saw in verse 5. So no matter how hard they are, we need not despair. God remains sovereign. And three, the purpose of our trials is to refine away the dross, to burn away the waste, leaving a more refined and pure faith. A faith that Peter describes is proved by the fire of adversity and that is described as more precious than gold, which at the time was pretty much, I think, the most valuable metal that was available It's more precious because gold, despite the fact that the fire burns away everything else and leaves the perfected product, that will still eventually wear away. 
gold will eventually wear down. But our faith, born salvation, guarded by faith, becomes a more genuine faith through the process of our refining. And in light of our present circumstances as a church, and the decisions that will be before us in the coming weeks and months, this is a particularly important thing for us to be thinking about and encouraging each other with. And again, it's instructive, I think, to remember from verse 3 that our obedience is not what creates our faith, but our faith creates our obedience. As a result, we need not be burdened by our failings at times. During temptation or trial in our lives where we've not honored God or been obedient, that needn't be crushing. If we have faith that's genuine, then it is not created or lost by our actions and it will be proved by the fire of our trials. Which I just found really helpful to think about. It's not, our trials aren't there to crush us, but they are there to perfect us. If you have a desire to persist in putting your sin to death and to grow and be refined, then take heart, brother and sister. That is good evidence that the trials are refining your faith, even if incredibly slowly. And as we turn to the fourth and last faith-filled assurance, we see that Paul calls us to rejoice again. And we have faith that glorifies. The last of Peter's exhortations show us that the ultimate purpose of our faith is to bring glory to God. So that even the testing of our faith can appropriately be experienced while rejoicing. And that its ultimate demonstration at the end of time will be in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed, when he comes again to take his people to be with him in heaven forever. When the eternal inheritance is realized and all of this is finally done away with once and for all. Giving glory to God is the intended culmination of it all as it was at the outset. And I think verse 8 appears to be another one of these little possible reflections by Peter of another moment with Jesus. A moment arising from the doubt of one of his fellow disciples, Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas. He wouldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he could touch the wounds of his Savior. And when gathered with the disciples together, Thomas had the opportunity to do so. And when he did, he declared in praise, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said this, Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I wonder if that's something we appreciate. That Jesus said, We who have not seen him in person, blessed are we who have believed in him and not seen him. Peter certainly doesn't seem to try and make any suggestion that the fact that he was with, other than being an apostle, 
which gives him the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. He doesn't create any higher level. He doesn't say somehow he's a better Christian than some other one because of who has or hasn't seen it. But there is something that Jesus highlights and Peter picks up in these verses, recognizing that it is to God's glory that we recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior without seeing him in person. And I think, again, it is because it's evidence of it being God's work. We haven't been able to walk along and see them. We haven't been able to touch his wounds. But we are given faith. And that is to the praise and glory of God. And the, certainly the purpose of our faith, and it being lived out in the, in the above three ways of expectant salvation with a guarded inheritance and refining trials, this is intended to result in rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, as Peter describes. And it brings Peter back again, where we started, to the promise of salvation. The joyful, eternal reality that all of this points to as God continues to shape and mold his people for their good, for our good and his glory as we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In the rest of the letter, Peter is going to go on to explain how this faith-filled, assured reality can and should play out in the Christian life while we await the return of the Lord in glory. And of course, Peter himself knew the significance of a tried and tested faith by the time of this letter. Having already lived with the burden of significant failure, we see him do all sorts of things throughout the Gospels. But there is one particular thing he does which the 1689 London Baptist Confession draws out as an example for explaining the elements of perseverance of the saints in chapter 14, paragraph 3 of that confession. In Luke chapter 22, 32 to 34, Jesus tells Peter that he has prayed for him for his uh, preservation, but tells him, that he will deny, tells Jesus, tells Peter, that Peter will deny Jesus three times. Peter, in his classic, impetuous way, refutes even the possibility that he might ever have a failing in faith. However, Jesus is resolute. And similarly with our passage today, assures Peter that despite this, he will turn and he says, when you turn again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells him, this trial is coming, but you will return to me. When Peter does deny Jesus three times in the lead up to his crucifixion, in Matthew 26, verses 70, 72, and 74, Peter remembers Jesus' words and weeps bitterly. Luke describes that in chapter 22, 61 to 62. After Jesus rises from the dead, I wonder, I wonder how Peter felt. As he spent time with Jesus, knowing that he had denied his Lord, 
Not once, not twice, but three times. After swearing to Jesus that he would never do such a thing. How would he have felt as he walked with the risen Christ? It it may actually not be that hard to imagine for us. You may have thoughts of your own right now where you know that you are not giving Christ your all. Where you have failed to live up to a life of appropriate obedience to God. Perhaps even when you are where you are denying him. But praise God, Peter was not kept in that painful, painful place. Jesus, having assured him before that he would turn, Jesus assures him of his continued love for him after his resurrection and then commissions him three times to love Christ's sheep, the people of his good pasture. And we see that in John 21, 15 to 25. We'll come to that in more detail probably in chapter 5. And Peter talks about being a shepherd. And that is what Peter is doing in this letter, isn't it? His address to the nation, so to speak, to the dispersed Christian community, living as though in exile as strangers and aliens, in the world but not of the world, living lives that are different, lives that seek the glory of God. A message that has been preserved for us and speaks to us today. He is taking care of his brothers and sisters. And as we seek to live out our lives of faith, the result is that our lives will run up against our adversary, the devil. We'll run against our sinful natures and we'll butt up against the world. Having lived this painfully himself, knowing what he knew of the incredible grace and mercy of God in Christ, having lived it in a personal moment with Christ. Peter shares these truths as Christ's apostle. And as a result, Christian, you are not kept in that painful place either. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of the apostle in verses 4 and 5, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not your power, are being guarded through faith for our salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It is there, it is waiting, and it will come to pass. And again, These verses are taken up in our statement of faith in recognizing the perseverance of believers in Clause 10. I encourage you to check out some of those this week as you think about and process these these verses today. This week I'm going to invite us to have the Lord's Supper straight away as part of uh, the message. And in a moment I'll invite us to grab bread and, and juice and what I, I want to do that because I want to use, encourage us to use the rest of our gathering to really focus our attention on that praise, giving God the glory as we exercise our faith that glorifies. This meal is a celebration of Christ's life and his death on the cross 
and the fact that God raised him back to life again, causing the elect people of God to be born again into a living hope and creating us, creating in us our saving, persevering, refining and God-glorifying faith. So those of you who are in Christ have a great assurance of their eternal, incorruptible and inheritance in heaven. And if that's you, if you are a Christian in good standing of another gospel-proclaiming church today visiting with us, and you've declared your faith in Christ through your baptism and your joining together with your own local church, then I invite you to join with us as we share in the Lord's Supper this morning. Just as we prepare to do that, and as perhaps Sarah and Hugh come up to play, I'm going to read Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. Perhaps use this as a prayer, and then we'll have a moment of just quiet reflection before we sing. Psalm 51, 10 to 12 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Just spend a couple of moments just in quiet reflection. See if there's anything you need to do business with God about. And then we'll sing and share in the Lord's Supper together. And as we sing, please come and take the elements.